From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Virtual Edition. We've been doing this via Zoom for the last six months, almost exactly six months, fellas. In fact, real close to exactly six months. We've got three of the four in-house today. Shane Jensen's here. Audie Wine is here. And I'm Cade Massey. Eric Bradlow is doing Eric Bradlow things, but he will be in later in the show to talk sports with us. We're going we're gonna to go a full uh, two hours. We're back to doing two hours. We're going to stay with our half-hour intro on coronavirus. It is the context of our sports lives as well as our lives in general. And then we'll roll into a couple half-hour segments on the sports world. And we're going to close with an interview. This is our new routine is to close with one half-hour interview in the fourth quarter. Today is with Josh Hermsmeyer. Excited to talk to Josh now that we have football season underway. Josh, longtime friend of the show and one of our favorite guests. We do that in the last quarter. So, guys, one, how are you? How are things going? How's Philadelphia? Excellent. Excellent. Philadelphia. The students have returned in mass, which is uh, interesting um, because they are not allowed on campus, really. I mean, there's no buildings to go to, but Penn's most of its students are live off campus. So a uh, huge number of them are, um, are around. So it well, feels a little is, different. I started noticing that in Philadelphia a few weeks ago around, you know, Rittenhouse Square, Fittler No, Square. yeah, it seems like the MBA program is still in residence just around Rittenhouse That's Square, right. not going into they campus. Are. I mean, it'd be interesting to note, the MBA program probably knows, but, you know, we have 1,700 MBAs, and I'm, they're, surely more than half of them are actually in Philadelphia. So oh, still it's 80%. Alive. Well, 80? of the first years, it's 80%. Second years, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, first years need that. And, you know, they need to be here to, to get to know people and do the social part of right. things, at least as social as you can be socially distanced. Um, Adi, you said you have some Penn data. What's going on? You have some yeah, kind of so coronavirus. Penn, Penn has a pretty good pro- protocol in place. Nobody's living on campus. So it's really for its requirement if you want to step on on campus you have to follow the rules and they they've done regular testing since the first week of august um the first batch of tests resulted it was on just under a thousand um students that were tested and resulted in zero positives the okay, second on, Adi, is this this is every mandatory random uh, well it's in august so not many people were around so yeah i believe it's mandatory i think if you are going to go on campus you have to do get tested and they have essentially uh, um, you go to Houston Hall right on campus and you, all you need is your pen card and boom, you get a test and it comes back in 48 hours. Okay. So it's a, it's a fairly efficient process to, to screen the students. Um, and well, that's, 48 hours doesn't sound very efficient, especially mm, when the NBA is talking about these 15 minute or 45 minute things now. Is that by American standards, 48 hours is well, Yeah, but maybe it's faster. Maybe it goes um, back to, in 24, but I believe it's PCR. So it goes to a lab. Um, Okay. Um, so a whole bunch of, of of my students have been being are being regularly tested, um, so it's and it's starting to create. So the, the next time they did it, the positive rate was around 0.3, and the the following time after that, which is the first week of September, the positive rate was up to 0.6, um, and we're expecting it to get higher still um, because they are now they're they're really now mingling in a much much more uh, a, a more larger numbers. It obviously starts to spread. Um, so we'll see. We'll have to keep an eye on that. So it's kind of low right now where they would like it, um, but the trajectory is obviously not good. So what we'll do what what do you think's going to happen? And what what's what's victory here? 
Well, um, that's a really good question. <laughs> Let me follow it up with another question. What types of what types of people are getting tested at Penn right now? Because as you sort of said, the undergrads are not in residence. The MBAs are kind of in residence in the city, but not going into yeah, campus and therefore right. not really being, I assume, are not a big part of this. So, so what, what population of, or what subpopulation of Penn is really being tested? And are they the type of people that are going to be mingling anyway? I actually think it's the people, I think exactly that. I think it is the people who are, who are exhibiting the most risky behavior are the ones getting tested because it's like a mixture of riskiness and responsibility. <laughs> so we're going to go out and, and, and see each other uh, in groups and outdoors and indoors and with and without masks. We try our best, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we'll try to match that with aggressive testing so that if we do get sick, we'll try to minimize the damage we do. Mm -hmm. And they're essentially arguing to me as an individual, I have very limited um, risk, but to society as a whole, it's much bigger. So I'll try to mitigate that by making sure that if I am an asymptotic carrier, I catch that very quickly. So okay. I, that's, I would guess, is the thinking. Okay, so we're speculating. It'd be nice to know more because that's that, that what you just stated is a very uh, responsible, mature approach, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> more responsible yeah. and mature than I might expect from your average 19 year old. Well, right. in the sense, first of all, Penn students, I think, are more responsible and mature, maybe not so much mature, but I think they understand the, 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 the consequences a little bit more, more completely. I mean, Shane's kind of like wondering, really? I don't know about <laughs> well, that. again, when you say that, when you use a word like more, I, I, yeah. I, re relative to what po other population? Yeah, I was surprised talking to my students how, how risk averse they were as a group. That was, mm -hmm. the, that was the, the conversations that I found kind of interesting they were they were very risk averse some of them have not moved up did not move to campus they staying remotely and others even the, while they're nearby are are behaving very very um cautiously and in fact we had a conversation about sports specifically what it would it take to get a student and i'm talking about this these were young people you can ask the same question to people of our age what would you what would you be required to get you to go to a sporting event like, no, and I mean, that's in the context of, you know, I mean, it was interesting to watch the NFL this weekend. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. sure we'll talk about kind of the results on the field later, but um, that, you know, of course, the NFL has kind of left it up to the home team, whether they whether fans are going to be allowed in the stadiums and two out of the two of the home games actually did have fans, uh, you know, Arrowhead, uh, Kansas City on Thursday had fans at 25% capacity, and I'm not quite sure how many, but Jacksonville had fans on Sunday as well. So I asked the students, if it's 25% capacity at a football game, would you go? And what I got from them was no. Mm. Huh, why? And they said, and this is to me, I thought a, sort of a, in some level a misunderstanding, they, they thought that it would be difficult to move in and out of the stadium without being in a crowd of people. So tell us about that because Shane has raised that before. And all, mm -hmm. of course our experience with big events is that you do get in these little funnels and you're kind of walking, you're kind of shuffling. Yeah. You're, mm -hmm. you're right on top of somebody. Somebody's right on top of you. You're not in control of your environment. That is the typical experience. Or I always think great. of the, I immediately think of the washroom facilities at any major big event being kind of an overwhelming process right. at full capacity. And I feel like still even at 25% capacity, the washroom facilities would not be, a six feet distant kind of operation. Right. right. And so, so that was their concern. I don't really have a good retort other than I have been to basically empty stadiums. 
Um, we've talked about it jokingly before, but the Miami Marlins cannot get a, a, a mm-hmm. crowd. And I've been to Florida. Yeah, that would be like 3% capacity or something and, like well, that. Well, it's, it's about 1,000, 1,500 um, out of, out of, it's about right. He's right around <laughs> 3%. Um, and that is just a wasteland. But I will say, even though it is only 3% capacity, that 3% capacity is all seated in the same spot. Mm-hmm. So they never but made you, an effort but here's to the thing. spread you have, them out. Well, you have a choice, right? If, if you're, yeah. Especially with that kind of capacity. Mm-hmm. You can arrive when you want to arrive. You can mm-hmm. leave when you want to leave. You don't have to drink three exactly. giant sodas. So you don't have to go to the bathroom if you don't want to. You don't have to sit in the best seats. And so you can create some space when the capacity is limited. right? That's right. And I guess that I also responded by asking them, I mean, I asked them, are you going to supermarkets? And I said, of course. And one of the things that I've noticed about supermarkets more recently, in particular, is they're becoming increasingly crowded and social distance. They're indoors. The social distancing is much more difficult to achieve than we used to. So how much of that, how much of that do you think is, um, so it's adaptation of some kind. How much of that is rational adaptation? We understand the risks better. And how much is just um, we take more we take more risk? We're like we're we're inured to the risk itself in some way. Tough question. I think it's just getting used to it. Um, yeah, I think it's more people getting inured to the risk. I mean, I do think with certain types of behaviors, we were overly risk as a society we're overly risk adverse to start with like you know i mean again hang you know i mean us hanging out in small groups in in public parks is also an an evolution of becoming a nerd to kind of the risk but i think in those cases the risk was kind of, you know i think we're we're still behaving somewhat rationally in that the risk was never that high in those kind of endeavors to begin to with, start with. Right. In, right. indoors is a different kind of animal obviously but what i try to do is get people to 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 try to line up the risks of things that they're doing to things that they're not doing and try to explain to them that one of them, if you're not doing this thing, but you're doing this one and they have the same risk, why? And mm-hmm. so their response was, well, um, you got to go eat, right? So I got to eat. So that's something I have to do. I don't have to go to a sporting event. But my response is, but you only go to the sporting event once. You're going weekly or sometimes mm-hmm. three times a week. So your accumulated risk from yeah, the supermarket, right. if you're worried about the kind of crowd leaving, which isn't terrible, but is it something you just deal with? It's it's collectively way smaller than what you're accumulating doing on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, yeah. This this reminds me of the New York Times survey they did a few months ago of epidemiologists, where they ask when do you anticipate doing this for the first time? And they listed like 50 different activities, and then they sorted those activities by how far in the future people thought. And it wasn't just people; it was epidemiologists. And so it was kind of a it was kind of a rationality check on this relative ordering, the exact relative mm-hmm. ordering you're talking about. And now I'm curious if they did it again, what it would look like. Like, yep. What have we learned and how, how would that relative ordering shift among people who are expert in this field? But listen, this, this raises an interesting issue that's in the news lately. Some municipalities are talking about opening bars. And it, I'm just dumbfounded by this conversation because back in May, we were having this conversation bars open all over the country and you know other things happen as well but that was part of the resurgence of this thing and i thought we kind of learned our lesson i thought we learned our lesson i thought we knew we we're not supposed to do this bars being inside with you know very I little face covering because you can't drink and talk and you have your face covered at the same time it's a, it's the worst possible environment for this thing and yet there's enough push among public officials that they're going to reopen bars 
And are, are you having a visceral reaction kind of to the bars? Because indoor dining has been kind of a thing across most of the country already for a month or two. Right. So and I, I am, I am the absence it. of food. Some, I mean, I like, I like, I guess, I guess we, you, you, it seems like, and you're not alone. I think a lot of people are kind of having more of a reaction to the concept of bars, even though we've been kind of doing that indoor without mask activity for I restaurants think, already. I think that a bar and a restaurant are similar, but in degree, they're not. A restaurant, particularly a low density, because they're, they're, you're required to either 25 or 50% density in mm-hmm. a restaurant, is a pretty sparse distribution of people. Bars can be extremely dense person per square foot, if you will. Right. Um, right. Well, well, but I mean, I they think, would still, but I, I, again, I, is, I am assuming, at least in Philadelphia, that the same capacity rules would apply to both a bar and a restaurant. But without the without the tables and chairs, yeah, you're I mean, more people in the think about think about a, you, what if they said bars have to be twenty five percent capacity. Think about the density of people in a bar at twenty five percent capacity yeah. compared to a restaurant. Versus oh a no, restaurant. and again, I think well, I I understand it's it's that you you are saying that the bars measure capacity <laughs> in a more dense way in general, but it yeah. would be a seated situation. I don't think bars would here at least here be opening. With under anything, the I, they would they would be opening under the twenty five percent capacity of seated patron. Like it would be basically under the restaurant. No, I, I bet that's not. They're gonna I don't think that's the case. As much as they can. And, so and I'm gonna, other I, other differences. Mm-hmm. I mean, one there's obviously the inebriation difference, and we all know, you know, people are less filtered. They take more chances when they when they're under the influence, even a moderate influence. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the let's call it the ratio of mass to unmasked time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's going to be, you have a, you have a drink in your hand within five minutes of walking in the bar and, and you, and you walk out, you know, five minutes after you put it down. So most of the time you have a drink in your hand, which means most of the time you're not going to have your mask on. Whereas with dining, you know, you might spend half your time waiting for your food. So you're probably got a mask on that time. So I think there, it strikes me that there are lots of factors that go the way, but I also think there are empirical studies that parse the relative impact of bar openings versus restaurant openings that show the bar has more impact. In some cases, it's, it's actually, I, I, I'm only recalling off, my, off the top of my head, but I think it's like significantly higher impact from bar reopening than restaurant. I also particularly worry about the downstream effects. Like I am, I am generally in favor of trying to get as much economic activity going as possible. But what concerns me is the, ex, is the accelerated um, pace of infection caused by bars which trickles down the lineup and ends up closing gyms, which are functioning fairly well now for a long time without much incidents. They're very sparsely attended. They, they're doing a very good job with ventilation. And, yeah. and, and I'm concerned that if we have a, a secondary breakout uh, caused by bars and we have to go back to where we were before, that's a disaster. Exactly. Well, yeah, no, but that would be anything that basically increases the baseline prevalence, right? I mean, it wouldn't just be... I mean, but you're pointing to bars specifically, but like, you know, do it gyms, <laughs> I mean, gyms are, you know, you're, you're saying that gyms right now are operating safely for mm-hmm. the current level of prevalence, but they're not under their current operation robust to an increased level of prevalence, yeah, yeah, right? right? And right. you're saying bars are going to be one way in which that prevalence goes up. It's not like somehow, bar, you know, gyms are extra vulnerable specifically to bars because people, I mean, people rarely, I, I, even I wouldn't go right from a bar to a gym or, or vice versa, right? So, um it's not, it's not kind of a direct effect. It's just through increasing baseline yeah, prevalence. Includes, I think, say, but I think bars are... Even you wouldn't go from a bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, well, I was thinking I, even I wouldn't go for a gym right to a bar. Yeah. And vice versa. 
Yeah. So, but it strikes me that we're having the same conversation about municipality decision-making as we were having about student decision-making. And this is mm -hmm. what Adi's been on about for a couple of weeks. It's just like, let's get the ordering right. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're too extreme in some places and not extreme enough in other places. And let's just get the ordering right. And I, what, what kills me about this bar conversation is that I feel like we kind of learned. I thought we learned that bars are one of the riskiest things we can do from public policy. Yeah. And so let's hold off on that because if you can't get that right, then as you say, you're going to screw up a lot of other stuff that should be more manageable right now. No, and, and I mean, I think it is kind of like we're all kind of concerned, at least for my, one way in which I'm concerned is I feel like the kind of public, the, the actual policy decision making is much more motivated by kind of economic considerations than it is by public health considerations. But it's almost like they're getting the economics wrong. They're, they're, they're going to screw the economics up. Well, no, but, or, or it's, it's short-sighted at least, short right? It, it's short-sighted that, you know, they're feeling a yeah. lot of pressure right now to reopen as much as possible because people are going out of business. Yeah. And, you know, if you make that kind of decision, you're not kind of, you're not probably factoring or it's but, not as immediate but, to you, the, well, the, you the, know, the downstream risk of that. But again, we've learned that this thing is, is aerosol and so ventilation is vital so if you really want bars to be open why not use that information so mm -hmm. Zainab Tufeki has been on about this in various social media Zainab has been prescient in a lot of ways on a lot of stuff for years but she's been really on about this ventilation thing so look if you want bars open how about letting people serve more outside how about letting them you know not inside but outside or yeah or what open some you know close some driving clear off some parking put more tables Put it outside where it's safer. Let the economic activity happen, but do it in a safe way as opposed to just like yeah, closing your eyes you, and rolling the dice. No, and I, and I think those are wonderful. And, and you're see, seeing that happening around Philadelphia. I mean, so many of uh, kind of the existing bars have just sort of reopened and are using either like have their windows completely open or are using as much as possible their outdoor space rather than their indoor space. It's just as fall turns into winter in certain parts of the country, like the mid-Atlantic, you're not going to necessarily be able to do that as much. I mean, you know, I think you know, bars, I think, are hoping that we somehow, it becomes, you know, like we, we get safe enough, fast enough, it becomes safe yeah, enough, right. fast enough that they're able to kind of go back to like wintertime activities, which is more that kind of crowded, entirely right. indoor space. They're going right. to have to, because another thing you could talk about is we're kind of in this nice phase right now in fall, at least here, where you don't have to necessarily have a lot of recirculated air. You don't necessarily need the air conditioning going full yeah. speed and you don't need heat yet, but you will need heat eventually. I, well, it's I funny, just real quickly, it's funny that we raised the winter issue because, you know, we're in Philadelphia. The people in yeah. Arizona were raising the exact same issue this summer. Like, hey, yes. find few outdoors people up in the north to say this. We're down here at 110. Right. We can't do it. Yeah. But it seemed to me the ordering is very important because um, a small crowd at a sporting of outdoor sporting event comes before bars. Yeah, in my mind, I agree, a hundred percent. And you don't open bars; you open up small crowds at sporting events. You you do the things that you have small concerts outdoors before you do bars. Yes, yes, you do, exactly. You, there's mm -hmm. and those are not happening because it's not safe. But we're going to do bars. I mean, a hundred percent, a hundred percent agree. And that is so, motivated by the economics. But you got to get people used to doing. They got to get it ordered right. And that I think is we're screwing up. Um, and, and, and this has been a, uh, I have to tell you on, it's, it's, a, it's a somewhat quite personal because we, we are, my wife's and our congregation, which is the, the Jewish High Holidays are coming up, and we are one of the only congregations actually having an outdoor service. Yes. And, be, and because we believe, I think rightly, it's a modest service, it won't be nearly the entire congregation, 
but it's in our parking lot. I mean, and it will spread a hundred people around a parking lot in there right. in chairs at a sizable distance. Um, and, and yet, yet people haven't, are not, are, many people don't believe we should be doing, and, are, and a lot of congregations are not doing this because yeah. they believe this is not safe because we haven't done a good job ordering things. Yeah, and, that, yeah, yeah. And, and, and if the rest of the world were starting to say, okay, this is okay, um, then maybe we'd go, we would go forward. And yeah. I, I spoke to another rabbi in England earlier today where small gatherings, I mean, gatherings of, of six or more in a home is illegal in England. Is that right? Illegal. Wow. That's how, okay. yet they feel it's, it's, yet it's, and the congregations they are doing it are having 100 person services outdoors, not an issue. Yeah, yeah. They're ordered right. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. And by the way, we're not saying we know the right ordering. We're saying let's take collective wisdom on the ordering and then act accordingly. And, 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 and we're also saying let's be calibrated. This is now this is a classic judgment thing. Let's be calibrated. Let's back off when the odds are really against us and let's move forward and help the economy when the odds are more forced. Let us welcome to the show the fourth musketeer. Eric Bradlow is here after all. Afternoon, Eric. Hey, good, good afternoon, guys. It's great to just jump in in the middle, but also, you know, to think about this, I assume you could also think about this, maybe you've already talked about this as like a sequential design problem. So how would you optimally, you know, if you wanted to optimally design this to learn, but with minimal risk, like at, back to Adi's point, where would you start? Like, would you allow this? And then this, this is obviously the intent, by the way, when they came up with these phased plans, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, but it seems like we've kind of lost our way in what I'll call the sequential learning aspects of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in some, some municipalities have been more rigorous about sticking to those plans than others. You know, they set some guidelines up front and said, we're not going to, we're not going to open until these numbers are hit or whatever. Speaking of hitting numbers, we talked about this vitamin D study last week and we were excited because the numbers looked so big. I mean, the impact that was reported in the Spanish study of the number of people who went on into ICU after getting vitamin D versus those who went to ICU without getting vitamin D, it was astounding. It was like a 50 to one or something impact, but, but we weren't hearing much about it. So Adi, you said you talked to some folks in the medical community to find out why they're not yeah. excited about this vitamin D stuff. Okay. So there are actually several reasons why they're not excited. Um, and they're really actually somewhat statistical. The first is um, basically it, it, they don't believe it can be that large. So it's like a prior. Yeah, right. So the, Too the, big the, effect. the effect is gigantic. And yes. so you don't, those aren't real, right? Effects yeah, that reasonable. size aren't real. And that's so reasonable. if you think about it, the, the data is, is predicting it, but the prior, your, your prior on that yeah. is that sure. that just can't be. And so when you have to join, you have to weigh two things with each other that are, they automatically discount it. The second thing, which is actually really quite important is that it's just, that doesn't mean dismiss it. That just means no, you're more skeptical. You're just yeah, much more skeptical. Right and the other issue is that it's um it's uh, uh, 76 individuals. Now the p value is small. That, no doubt about it. It's really about as close to zero as you could ever get a p value, whether it's 76 or 76,000. It's ridiculously small p value because the imbalance was so gigantic. Um, and but yet, nevertheless, when you're dealing with a small study. It's just a lot easier for a small study to be yeah. wrong for, a, for for other factors, whether okay. it's, so this whether is it's like frequentist versus classic, frequentist versus Bayesian 
of posteriors. With the frequentist, you're, it doesn't matter as much. You've got that strong significance. With the Bayesian, you're like, well, small sample, I'll move some, but I'm not going to move that much. Eric. And the final, final reason why they have their little skepticism is they're worried about a run on vitamin D. And this is... Well, that's not a good reason to be skeptical. Well, oh, we're back to that not, mask not, 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 strategy not, not, again. Not the mask. I'm, I'm, I'm misleading you here. Not a, they're not concerned about that. Vitamin C in high doses has, has, has consequences, negative consequences. Vitamin D. Vitamin, vitamin D, D in high doses, particularly for more vulnerable populations. Because it's not, so, it's not water-soluble like It's not water-soluble. Right? It can yeah. cause kidney stones. It can, mm-hmm. it can cause problems. Um, and probably the less healthy you are, the, the more likely to have those problems. So I have... Uh, former grad students who take 10,000 units a day and they, and they, they have no problems and they say it's fantastic, but they're healthy young people. So this was again, like the, the context, at least of this study was like people in the ICU. So that the, no, no hospitalized, that was hospitalized. the end point. The end point was avoiding ICU. Right. Um, and uh, so these, and these people were not terribly sick. That was to be included in the study. You, you not to, you could be terribly sick. You had to have a pretty good health profile to start with. Prior to prior to the study, so they're okay. worried about potentially worried about people self medicating on something yeah. that has danger, and that's and that's that's I guess the third component. I can't weigh them all together. I would I would basically say the first one is the is the number one. So are you are you saying that that we shouldn't go for that extra walk in the sun that you were advocating? Oh no, us? that's genuinely a, a plus plus all around <laughs> mental and physical health. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, fellas, why don't we wrap up the coronavirus part of this conversation? Call that first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. We've got the full crew in-house. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball virtual edition. Two-hour virtual edition. We've expanded. We're back to our normal length. We're doing 90 minutes, and then we're adding interviews. Back to adding interviews. We've got the whole crew here. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen rolling into the second quarter. We did the first quarter on coronavirus. That's what we want to do these days, but we've got plenty of sports to talk about. Two quarters of sports, and then we end up with an interview talking to Josh Hermsmeyer at the end of the show. Josh, that must be this football time, guys. Did you happen to watch any football this weekend? Well, I watched as much football as I could. By yeah, the me way. too. Let's start with the first game. I mean, let's, we, we should start with the defending champs, right? I mean, Kansas City, I mean, here's the things. Um, the two teams to me, maybe not surprisingly, that stood out were the two teams that Shane has been talking about for a few weeks that we should all be paying attention to. They're both in the AFC. That was Kansas City and Baltimore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Kansas City and Baltimore looked exceptional. They looked in midseason form. Um, and I have no reason to believe, although I must admit, I watched the entire Steelers game last night, and Shane was right. You put Big Ben back there. And Big Ben looked like Big Ben. Yeah. It took, him like, have a better it took him like a quarter to wake up. But once Big Ben woke up, it looked like the 25-year-old Big Ben. He looked like he was rifling the ball all over the place. Those three teams, I watched a lot of football this weekend, and those three teams stood out to me as being more exceptional than any NFC team I saw and just, you know, I'm I'm waiting for the AFC slugfest. Real quickly, since you since you're talking about those teams and you seem to have paid close attention, you 
you commented on the quarterbacks and the offenses. What about the defensive side of the ball? Did you see many differences across those three teams in terms of defensive performance? I mean, the Steelers did a real number on the Giants, right? Was that more about the Steelers or was it about the Giants? I think well, it is. No. I mean, I, I do think the Giants are not great, but I think the Steelers do have a top five defense in the league. And that's what's kind of scary is that, you know, Big Ben may not be back to his 100% level, but he's that's going to – I think he's going to be playing – you know, on a team with a better defense than he has for the last few years. Yeah, the only thing I would say about that is that it it shows you what one play can make in a game. So just to remind you, um, the Steelers were up 16 to 10. I believe it was in the late third quarter. And the Giants had driven down to the seven-yard line. And uh, Daniel Jones throws an – his arm gets hit. throws an absolutely awful pick in the end zone. Now, look. If that ball is a touchdown and, and Giants go up 17-16 with essentially a quarter to go, you know, we might, I might be saying, yep, Kansas City and Baltimore look great. Pittsburgh, I'm just not sure about. You know, so while they looked very good, um, I'm not sold yet on Pittsburgh, but they certainly look better than, well, other potential teams in the AFC. I mean, there's some just horrible teams. They look better than, like, you know, the, the Raiders who won. They look better than... I don't know. The Cincinnati was reasonable. I, I guess they lost at the end. Cincinnati, they did. They yeah, did. they lost at the end. They, you know, the Bengals. They were really. I mean, the Bengals would really be coming out of nowhere to be considered contenders this year, anyway. But Joe yeah. Burrow's first game. But no, I, I, I do think. I mean, I've, I've sort of. I have. I, I think last season basically it was the Ravens and KC, and then a big drop off. And, you know, the Ravens just happened to have a bad playoff game or whatever. I think it was the same situation last season, and usually the top two teams, you see some regression, but their off-season moves for both Kansas City and Baltimore, if anything, those teams seem to have gotten stronger. Wow. That's a, that's a one-game inference. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, it's based on their off-season as well. I mean, it yeah. is also an overreaction to the first week, but it's well, we, we're we supposed to overreact one... to the first week. This is our right, role well, this week. Can I, can I take I, – well, I But real quickly, Adi, before, before that, let, let me just remind you that last week we were talking about what kind of regression to the mean we expected from Pat Mahomes. And then the argument was, I love this argument. It's like, yeah, he's going to regress to the mean. He's going to regress to his mean. And by the way, that mean is improving because he's only in his third year in the NFL. Or is it just yeah, third, his third year as a starter? Third year, um, third, second, second year as a starter. Yeah, third year in the third NFL, year second year as a starter. Um, and there's a lot of growth at that stage. But the same thing applies to Lamar Jackson. And so it's quite possible that just the youth of the quarterback alone would lead us to expect improvements in those teams despite the level of play we saw from them last year, which is a pretty remarkable thing to say. Good point all around. I have to, I, I would say I have not, didn't watch as many games as, as all of you, but I did watch quite a few and I even managed to watch baseball at the same time. I'm just very <laughs> proud of that. I had to have multiple screens going, but I did watch um, our local Eagles and I wanted to he- have you guys describe it. I don't know that much about football, but their defense, their offensive line looked confused. Well, and, they've and had I, a ton of injuries. Uh, like, like basically three or four of their top guys um, on that off, yeah. on the Eagles' offensive line. And also, you know, I'll just point out that the football team, as we call them, the football team has, I think, five um, first-round picks in their defensive front. That's correct. So, you know, they, they're, you know, I think it was sort of a perfect storm for the Eagles in terms of like they're, they're a depleted offensive line against a, an amazing defensive front on the part of the football team. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite articles, you know, they always have the post-mortems after the, every week, but certainly the first week was by Bill Barnwell. Yeah. And 
his article said, and obviously a game near and dear to my heart, but not one that makes me happy, was the Buccaneers-Saints game. And his article was entirely about, if you think Drew Brees had a better game than Drew, Tom Brady, you're nuts. Drew Brees had an awful game. His yards per pass were terrible. His completion percentage was terrible. And if you think about this was Adi, I know it reminded me of all the work you guys have been doing with students. They know where the receivers are and mm-hmm. where they know what his completion percentage should be based on motion data. His completion percentage should have been like 71.8% and he completed 60% of his passes. He was last in the NFL in terms of yards per pass. It was only 5.4 yards per pass. So his comment was, you should be much more worried if you're a Saints fan than you should be if you're a Buccaneers fan at this point. I thought it was just a, a wonderful, forget wins and losses, it was an analytical look at both quarterbacks and I thought it was so well-crafted. Well, it, feel, it feels, so we're, we're always... We're always big on Barnwell, and he's, he's not really an analyst, but he uses analytics really wisely, and he's been doing it for a long time, so he's been good for the field. Great writer, great observer of football. But one of the things that's indicting, I think, about that observation about Breeze is that in recent years, the concern about Breeze has been at the end of the season, that with age and wear and fatigue, he drops off at the end of the season. Here it is in week one where fatigue should not be an issue and we see some of the worst performance we've seen out of him for a while. So, yeah, it does sound, it does sound concerning. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would sort of say, I mean, obviously Brady did, also did not have a good game. But, um, but uh, I, I think, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to overreact to Brady's not, you know, le- mediocre first game because it is worth, again, remembering that he's on a new team with a new offense in this weird offseason where there haven't, hasn't been as much imp- opportunity to gel, whereas Breeze is coming right. in kind of under the exact same – situation than he was last year and not only only that just quickly remember the saints were have been the best team in the nfc essentially over the last three seasons so it's not like they were playing the arizona cardinals although Mm -hmm. the cardinals impressive cardinals are super impressive exactly i mean they were playing a top nfc team yeah Yeah. so so adi's been trying to get in here yeah i guess i have two two i have a question and a comment my first comment is that yes drew Brees didn't may not have looked so good but of all the sports the win is the is in football the most important sport. A single win has the most impact, and it generally means the, the most. So I, I maybe want to walk back those criticisms a little bit because he did get the win, and and that has a lot of value, I would guess. Um, you might want to straighten me out a little bit, but uh, but my question for all of you about Tom Brady is forty three. Yeah, this is yeah. data at a, about a forty three year old is way va- more valuable on a, on a per play, if you will, basis than just about anybody else on the field. Mm. And what is your evaluation? Because um, my expectation is at some point, the robot's going to, has got to stop, right? And it's going <laughs> to fall spectacularly. So anyway, what do you see? So let me tell you, um, I've said this, actually, I'm going to make a connection between sports. So I said this when about Roger Federer. I've said this about Serena Williams. I'll say this about Tom Brady you get a bimodal distribution. There were some throws that Tom Brady made, and you're like, it's Tom Brady. I can't believe the Buccaneers have Tom Brady. And then there are other throws, and you're like, I can't believe the Buccaneers have this 43-year-old guy (laughs) playing quarterback. And, you know, a lot of times it's between game variation. Um, I saw within game variation in this case, where sometimes within the game he didn't look as good. Mm. And um, to be honest with you, if you look at the score line, 
and I put the name Jameis Winston next to that line, it actually looked like a classic Jameis Winston scoreline. Yeah, you completed about 60% of your passes. You threw for 250. You threw two picks, one of which was a pick six returned, you know. Yeah, that pick six must have made you feel at home. (laughs) Oh, it made me feel at home all right. But actually, I'm I'm sure you saw the stat, Shane. He's now only one away from tying the NFL record. He's now had three consecutive games. Yeah. Where he's thrown a pick six. Mm-hmm. And just to show you, how, that's not Matt Schaub, a guy we all love, you know, has some of the great offensive games in the history of the NFL, has the record at four. But I'm just saying, if Brady throws a pick six in the next game, he's now tying the NFL yeah. record ever for all quarterbacks of consecutive games with a pick six. So that's my answer, Adi. Sometimes it looked like the good, the very good Tom Brady. And other times during the same game, I'm like, this guy's 43 and I'm really worried. Yeah, I just want to basically echo what Eric said. Like, it was a very high-variance performance from Tom Brady. Some of his drives, he looked amazing. Like, the first drive, it looked, like, absolutely dominant. But it was it, those interceptions were ugly. Um, and so I think in a situation where he gives such a high-variance performance, it's, it limits how much we can kind of – I mean, it, learning off of one game is limited anyway, but when it's such a high-variance sort of uh, outcome, I think it, it's, it's really hard to kind of take too much away from that. Right. Uh, game other than i think the tampa bay sort of like looked pretty undisciplined and sloppy in general there was a lot of yeah. you know false start penalties i mean new england never has false start penalties muff, i'm, muff I'm sure that's you know over the end that muff punt, punt return yeah that, yeah it was it was so just wanna, kind of a sloppy i want to say something else i want to intersect this though with also i want to it's a strange transition i want to intersect this with the greatness of bill belichick and let me say why what did you notice in that new england game how many times did cam newton throw the football uh, I don't know, like 15 maybe? It was, Nine, very, it was 18. Okay. He ran it 15 times. Yeah. So notice, what does Bruce Arians do? He's hoping for the 30-year-old Tom Brady that's going to come in there and first time in a system, throw it 45 times and win the game against the top team in the NFC, the New Orleans Saints. What does is, what is, uh, Bill Belichick do? He says, look, this is Cam Newton coming off a one-year injury. This isn't the MVP Cam Newton. At least he has to prove it to me that he is. He runs, he has Cam Newton run basically as many times as he passes, manages the game entirely differently, doesn't even put him in a situation to make mistakes. So I just thought that contrast showed me that's Bill Belichick and that's everybody else in this league. I love that point. I mean, everybody else is a little bit strong, but But you're talking about a quality, a quality of a coach that is so desirable, like willing to work with the tools that he has and instead of trying to force the tools into a scheme that he wants to use. No, and I mean, the Patriots back when they had Tom Brady and a lot of kind of consistency year to year and what offensively they would do, were still a very unpredictable team. Bill, you know, the, him, him and Josh McDowell, were able to come up with game plans that constantly surprised opposing teams. And now you throw like an entirely different kind of offense into that. I mean, planning for the Patriots – is a nightmare, I think, most seasons, but this season especially, trying to plan for what he's going to do yeah, with really. this with this very different set of offensive weapons than he's used to is. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be a nightmare to try and defend. Well, speaking speaking of coaching, that Michael Lopez uh, up at the NFL tweeted this afternoon about the the number of fourth and shorts that coaches went for it on in Week One, and he compared it to other Week Ones. So in the last five or six years, it's grown from something like – this is like fourth and two and shorter. It's grown from something like about a third of the time. 
it's I think it may be monotonic since 2014 or 15. And now it just crossed 50%. So more than 50%, right at 50% of the time this weekend on fourth and short, the NFL coaches decided to go for it. This is like really interesting progress. Except for one team. <laughs> and by the way, I'm, I'm, since Adi probably watches less football than the rest of us, mm. Adi, if I told you the New York Giants didn't go for it two times that they should have on fourth and one, Not do you know who the offensive coordinator is uh, no. of the New York Giants? <laughs> it's Jason Garrett, the Cowboys coach, who people have vilified for being an absolutely horrible play caller. I'm watching this Giants game. They had fourth and one from the Steelers' 40. The Steelers' 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was yeah. fourth and inches. And they punted the ball. I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God no. What are yeah. you doing? It's Jason Garrett all over again. I'm like, what? fire him right now. Yeah. You've got to fire him in the middle of this that's game. A, that's amazing. Someone should point out um, not only the, the mistakes, but how big the mistakes are. And yeah, that has got to be one of the biggest mistake in expected probability value. lost, basically. No, and, and I mean, I think we are getting there. I will just sort of point out, I think, a victory in general – I mean, it's, it's a victory that these things have gotten up above 50%. That's a watershed moment we should celebrate. But I, let's also celebrate that every time a fourth and short comes up now, what does the broadcaster say? He, they, at least, they always say the analytics would say go yeah. for it here. Yeah, yeah. they do. Howdy, which one do you think is a bigger mistake? Not going at fourth and one from the 40, or they yeah. didn't go for it fourth and one from the one. Oh, fourth and one in the one is the biggest mistake. Well, I he didn't go for it then either. They that, kicked the field that's goal. Big. That's insane. I mean, said, that's just... On, Shane, on Shane's point, back to opening night, Chris Collinsworth, I mean, within the first 20 minutes of the telecast, was talking about the virtues of going for it on fourth down. And they were having... And then Michaels wouldn't let it go. Well, Michaels was like, I don't know. And so they had this kind of ongoing multiplay mm-hmm. yeah. dialogue, which is just fantastic. Of course, Collinsworth owns PFF. <laughs> Yeah, yeah of, of all the broadcasters that would ha- be able to tell us on the fly what the kind of percentage, you know, would be, it would be Collinsworth. I was literally just thinking about the Cal- the Giants, sorry, and I was thinking, how many points did Jason Garrett, fourth and one from the 40 and fourth and one from the one, I'm thinking, how many points did this guy just give up? I mean, you're talking about the change in win probability is significant on those two plays. Yeah, yeah totally. I, I would, I mean, I think the fourth and one on, on inches and the goal line is probably worth Two points, just to estimate right away yeah. in expected value. I mean, look, Dave Gettleman, the general manager there, is not known for being the most analytics forward G- uh, GM in the league. And so we can blame Garrett, but it goes, you know, it kind of runs pretty deep, I think, in that organization. I want to add real quickly before we leave the NFL, tell me about the Cardinals. So that's an interesting team, and yeah. I, I, but I, I didn't see anything. So DeAndre Hopkins, Kyler Murray in his second year. They looked amazing. I mean, I, 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 again, only watch highlights from that game, but like, no, I mean, I mean, a Kyler Murray is fat. I mean, he's fast. He's dynamic. He seems to just be able to kind of run over the field and almost like, you know, not quite at that Lamar Jackson sort of like level, but like, that would be, I think he'd maybe be second in, in, in terms of that kind of mobility, I think among the quarterbacks that I'm thinking that I can think of right now. And yeah, I mean, adding Deandre Hopkins, I mean, the chemistry is almost instant. I think he like had 150 yards in his first. Yeah, game. he had he had his his bet in terms of number of catches. Matt typed 14. I think it's 50. Yeah. Whatever the numbers, DeAndre Hopkins 
set his record for the most catches in a game. So Kyler Murray's also a smart man. Throw the ball to the best receiver in the NFL and get out of the way. And what a buzzsaw that division is. I mean, we were kind of thinking of Arizona as like the weak team in that division, I guess, to the extent that there is one, but there really isn't. I mean, because Seattle. Did everybody, I guess everybody but San Francisco, who Arizona beat, won. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You were impressed with the Rams' performance? Getting past that offensive pass interference or were you just unimpressed? That, that Rams Cowboys game was pretty sloppy too. I, 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 I didn't come out of that game particularly impressed by either, either team. It was kind of a coin flip throughout, but not in kind of a, an impressive way, in my opinion. I mean, the, the ones that Seattle really impressed me because not only was it a fantastic game by Russell Wilson, but if, 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 if that's kind of indicative of them leaning on Russell Wilson going towards more of a pass heavy thing, which, you know, their fans have been begging them to do for right. years. Right. I mean, then that, you know, if, if that's indicative of what we're going to see from Seattle, they're going to be an incredibly scary team oh, this year hey, as well. Just tell me this, the other guy who had a ridiculous, another Titanic war of a game, which was a great football game to watch, which I watched was Packers Vikings and Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers. Like 8, looked incredible yards, four touchdowns, <laughs> no picks. Yeah. And people, you know, we were telling the story. You love these, Spake yeah, story. Yeah. Well, he was motivated because they drafted his heir apparent. So he yeah. was going to come out there and show them. Yeah. No, I, I saw articles where it's like spite is the number one motivator for Aaron Rodgers. I'm like, did you just make that up? Was that well known beforehand? I had not heard that about Aaron Rodgers up until now, that he was just a spiteful guy. Well, how good, this, how good this, was the actual performance in New It was incredible. I mean, his, his performance was incredible. Um, I mean, it was, again, you, you could argue it was against a depleted secondary. I, I mean, you could, you could put mitigation, mitigating circumstances on it if you want, but it was just an incredible quarterback what, performance. What, what, what's wrong with Baker Mayfield? I mean, he, he was the number one pick in the draft just a couple of years ago, and he just is getting lapped by the field, it seems. And, you know, Baltimore played a good game, but we're mostly impressed with Baltimore's offense and they Mayfield did not look good yeah I mean I, I do think Baltimore has you know at least a top 10 if not time, top five defense in the league as well but no I mean I in particular you know we're still waiting for this chemistry between him and Beckham Jr. to develop because Odell Beckham Jr. has also been essentially terrible since going to Cleveland right and you keep kind of waiting for that to happen and, and it's not and it's not like lack of trying I mean I think uh, Odell Beckham had like 12 targets or something like that. And they had some large number of targets. Right. It's just, they couldn't make anything happen with it. Well, I, I mean, look, my, my favorite play in sports is Baker Mayfield being sacked. And so I'm not complaining. I'm just curious. I'm curious how much longer I can expect to enjoy this feast that I've been given guys. What about college football? I mean, I know it's kind of a soft open because the, the sec is not in there yet. We don't have half the country playing, but we did have college football. This weekend, did anybody pick up any at all? I mean, I watched the Longhorns win by 56, which was fun. I did watch every play. Did anybody else watch any football? I watched a little bit of college football. I watched Texas for a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, I just, once it became obvious that they were going to blow the other team out, I stopped watching. But it was – um, yeah, I mean, I – there weren't any heavyweight battles because a lot of times, by the way, just to remind everybody, there are a lot of times at the beginning of the season where you get these like, you know, Miami FSU when those were teams were good or Notre Dame USC, or you get these games that are good. We're not getting them this year. Well, there were some interconference games and the big 12 regrets scheduling those games because the sun, the Sunbelt conference won three games against the big 12, which may hurt them come playoff time. 
but mostly we miss those interconference games. Um, this weekend is going to be even slower. If you didn't like last weekend, you might want to schedule something else for this Saturday because there's not a lot going on on college football. But but week after this one, the SEC rolls back into town and uh, and the Big 12 um, and the ACC really kind of crank it back up again. So a little sleepy on the college football front. Um, what else around the world of sports? There is so much going on. We're going to have more in the third quarter, but we've got a few more minutes here. What's top of mind? Once we clear football, once we clear the next room football, what's top of mind? I'll take 10 seconds in a minute to talk about the tennis in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open final. Yep. But I just want to say a shocking thing is tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. The Nuggets are playing a game seven against yes, the Clippers right. to eliminate the Clippers. And by the way, this, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe you shouldn't update. The, the betting line has essentially not moved since game one. In other Every words – yeah, it's been – There's no home court. It's so. moved one point. In game one where the Clippers were the heavy favorite, they were eight-and-a-half-point favorites. Tonight's mm-hmm. game, the Clippers are seven-and-a-half-point favorites. So mm-hmm. you're telling me after a 3-3 outcome – and mm-hmm. I know you guys don't want to talk about momentum, but Denver has won the last two games, got down from 3-1. You're oh, telling me the a, betting line hasn't changed yeah. at all? Okay, I think there's a fascinating question. I'm, I'm neutral on the I'm neutral on that question, Eric. You're asking it with a lot of attitude as if it's obvious. I don't think that's obvious. No, no. And I, I mean, I, I, I don't understand why that line hasn't moved a little bit more just because, you know, the teams do seem more evenly matched than I think we saw. Do they? Uh, I mean, they, the Clippers like to go down by 17 before halftime. That does not sound like even Denver. Denver well, no, well, I, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, Denver. Yeah, no, well, but right. But I mean, don't you we know, see a lot of uh, seven games in basketball that there's one by the favorite. Well, or, or let me, I, 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 we do. I mean, no. I had an even no. more specific question no. uh, to, to Eric Bradlow's momentum thing. There have been a lot of series in different sports that have gone, you know, from 3-1 to 3-3. How yeah. often does the team that came back win that game seven okay. versus not? That's, I mean, obviously, I'm asking an empirical question. I don't know the answer to it. but I think you know. the question is – I think the answer is, and this gets to Cade's point about questioning my incredulity, which he's right to do, um, <laughs> which team is the home team? And I don't mean because home field is that much. I mean because the home team is the better team. Yeah. yeah and yeah, so right. I, the answer is it just depends on which team was down 3-1, to one, right? And so that matters. In this case, there is no home game. And you could make an argument for Adi's point. Yeah. If you were going to see a game seven, this might be the kind of year because uh, Nuggets didn't have to win one or two at Clippers. They just had to right. win them in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it'll be good fun. I saw the game. I saw the, I saw the score early in game six, and they were yet again down 15 late in the second. I'm like, well, that series is going to go the way it's been waiting to go the whole time. And then I found the result the next morning. Not only that, so, but the Nuggets won by 13. They turned know, it around they by away at the, end. the score so, in the so. second half of that game was 64 to 35. The Clippers, the vaunted Clippers, scored 35 points in the second half. So I, 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 I think it's fair to ask whether there's a psychological edge at this point. I mean, the Clippers oh, have done it, and the, I mean, the Clippers haven't done it, and the Nuggets have in these in these circumstances, and that has to play in there somewhere. It just has to be. Yeah, so the um, just so you know, by the way, Doc Rivers is something like 0-7 in some sort of clinching games with the Clippers or something like that. Oh, my. Oh, my. That's ugly. Uh-huh. So while we're on the NBA, the Celtics made it past the Raptors. The Heat's, like, comfortably waiting for them. The Celtics get a little bit of a, 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 
a, a little break. They won't be waiting much days. more. 6.30 tonight, they'll be playing. So by the time this is aired, we'll know how both of those things, the first game in the finals out east went and the last game in the quarters in the west. But it, it, basketball, I mean, it just has to be said, we've, we've knocked NBA for a long time, and this has been a pretty entertaining playoff. It's been, it's been certainly less chalky than it usually is. It's been yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, good fun, good fun. Um, guys, we've only got another minute or so here before the break, but NHL, the Stars made it through. Right, and what are we looking at for the finals? What's the, how's the Stanley Cup shaping up? Well, I mean, it's so it's going to be the Stars in the West. They were able to finish off, uh, finish off the Vegas Golden Knights, and you know, I mean, the, I think the story of their of this recent series is their goaltender Kabulin has like been playing out of his head. I mean, it's it's I guess somewhat of a conventional NHL playoff storyline. Is it's really a goalie? Uh, their effort has been very much uh, driven by uh, amazing goaltending, and we'll sort of see if that. Shane, you know, to what extent through. is that like saying, look, I mean, what, the coin landed heads a bunch of times in a row, so I guess heads wins. I mean, you know, to what extent is goaltending just – Well, I don't, I know. I, I, goaltending almost – you know, retrospectively, goaltending was always important to winning a series. But prospectively, right. picking which goaltender is going to be that kind right. of hot goalie ahead of time – I mean, there's no, there's no chance, really. Even like going from the West semis to the Stanley Cup, right? You can't. There's no real. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's a little bit. Also, it's tough because whoever comes through on the other side will probably be having it's a quick, relatively hot question. Shane, is there any serial correlation? If so, if a goalie's hot in one round, are they hot? Yes, in the next one? yes, there is. There is. There is a definitely. little bit of correlation. Yeah. All right. Well, it's always fun to see a Texas team in the Stanley Cup finals. Let me just say. <laughs> All right, fellas, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition. We've been doing these since March, recorded via Zoom. We have expanded from our abbreviated one-hour version to uh, two-hour versions. Welcome to that second hour. Got the whole crew here, Shane Jensen, Center City, Philadelphia, Audie Weiner, and Eric Bradlow out on the main line. Kate Massey here hosting somewhere in Central Texas. Good to see you guys. We've been talking sports here. Got some more to talk about. So much going on. Um, Want to say, listeners, you can reach out and grab us. Uh, at W Moneyball is the easiest way to do that. At W Moneyball is our handle on Twitter. Send us questions. We're always interested in your questions and observations. You can also send any one of us email if you've got that. Um, so, Guys, uh, U.S. Open, both tennis and golf to talk about. We're just done with the tennis. We're rolling into the golf. But, the, but, the, but the, both men's and women's draw turned out to be really interesting, right? So we, the big news we talked about last week was Djokovic getting, getting pulled because of his um, ball hitting. But we end up with this terrifically entertaining final, right? And I know Eric was paying a lot of attention to it. And then on the women's side, terrifically. How long has it been since we had finals that were both as compelling as those two? Yeah, they, they were both fantastic, fantastic matches. The uh, women's final was Naomi Osaka against Victoria. She was by Bika, Bika Azarenka. Um, both of them, interestingly, from different, I'll call it generations, they both had two majors coming into this. So actually, they were both going for their third major. Uh, Osaka, more recently, uh, Azarenka hadn't won one in seven and a half years. She won two Australians in 2012 and 2013. Um, 
Azarenka came out like fire, blitzed her the first yeah. set, I think it was 6-1. Right. And then the next two sets, I think, were both maybe 6-3. Yeah. Um, but it was a re- it was amazing women's tennis. It was clean ball striking, great all-court games, um, no choke. Everyone was just playing well under pressure. It was a very entertaining match. And it made me feel good because, you know, Azarenka – hadn't even won a match in a year and a half before right. the Cincinnati and Western or whatever they call it open, which was the week before which she won, which she won in a default in the finals against Osaka, by the way. And then they I actually, didn't realize that. yeah, she, they both made it to the finals and Osaka had a slight hamstring issue. But, and so Azarenka won, and then they both made it to the finals of the U S open. Let me just tell you women's tennis. And by the way, this is without remind you, this is without Ash Barty, the number one player in the world. Simona Halep, the number two player in the world. I think the number four or five player in the world wasn't there. Women's tennis is in great shape. There are so many interesting, exciting, great players. And um, I can't wait to see what happens at the French Open. Women's tennis to me, almost to be honest with you right now, is almost more exciting to me than men's tennis because I see so many good players and there's 10 to 15 of them each could win on any given tournament. Well, the, I, I would love to hear – we need to have some tennis analytics folks back on. I'd love to hear an analytics breakdown of the men's versus women's game. There's, there is a, there's a – in some ways, ten, the women's side is more interesting because there's, because there's a little less power. So sometimes the men's game can be so much power that right. the, the tennis itself isn't as interesting. Yep. But I'm a huge – I mean, just as a layperson fan, distant fan of the game, Osaka, I love seeing her do well and get back psychologically. Um, just a, it, it was one, I was so bummed when I saw that early score while I was kind of walking through the house and seeing her not doing it in the first set. Wonderful comeback. Okay, men's side, an even bigger comeback. Yeah, well, I mean, it was the first time in 70 years at the U.S. Open that a man had come back from two love down in the finals. And so Dominic Team was playing Alexander Zverev. Um, and- world rankings, world rankings of these people? Uh, number, Theme was seated second. And so he would be seated either – if worldwide, he would be either three or four. I don't remember if he's ahead of Federer or not, but certainly Djokovic and the dollar up top. Then comes either Thiem and Federer, and Zverev is number five or six. Uh, Tsitsipas yeah. is ahead of Zverev. So this is like number two or three or four in the world against number five and six in the world. Okay. So these were – once Djokovic was out, these were the top two favorites yeah. to actually make it. Um, uh, Zverev came out like a ball of fire, won the first two sets easily, and was up a break in the third set. Wow. And then Theme started really playing. And then it went to a fifth set tiebreaker. Right. And it went to six all in the tiebreaker. So, I mean, it went, I mean, this was, yeah. and but these but guys. But this were, wasn't, oh, in Wimbledon, they would have to play, they wouldn't have the tiebreaker in the fifth set, right? They, they would until 12 all. No, no, no. Oh, Wimbledon right. used to have no tiebreakers in the fifth set. Remember, that's how Djokovic defeated yeah. Federer. He yeah. 13-12 in the fifth because it went to a 12-all tiebreaker. Okay, okay. Um, but this was also, you know, people say that this is the next generation because, you know, nobody had really won a major except for the big three. Yeah, Murray won three. Warinka's won three. Uh, Del Patro's got one. Chilich has got one. People say the next generation. No way. You put a healthy, I don't care who's for, you put a healthy Federer and Dahl and Djokovic, Thiem and Zverev are not winning a final. It's just not <laughs> happening. It, not yet. I'm not saying it won't happen in two or three years. Zverev is 23, Thiem is 27. So they've got time. But let me just tell you, they're, they better, they better, they're going to have a two think, or three year wait. What do we think, what do we think peak is in tennis these days? It's so different than it used to be, but what's no, our my, best guess? It used to, be, it used to be 30 was over the hill. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the, their ability to focus, their, their, they, they yeah, and I mean, right. And I, I mean, I, I would like to see that kind of peak calculation with Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal removed from sort of, you know, versus not, you know, like, like, like obviously they've shown They're that you can things. be incredibly yeah. proficient into your like late 30s. Uh, but is that kind of a general trend among this trend about tennis players? This is interesting question. Yeah. Rufus and I struggle with this when we model quarterbacks because, yeah. If you're trying to function, if you're trying to model quarterback production as a function of experience and age, the great quarterbacks are these really old guys, and they really throw you off. It's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. But I think this shows you, though, how far the gap is. You're telling me a 39-year-old Roger Federer would be favored against a 23-year-old Alex Verov? I mean, holy! I mean, this just shows. I mean, no way is Federer better than he was five years ago, seven years ago, and he still would be favored over this right. top of this next gen yeah. player. So to me, I think that I think that's the, the ability that, gap is great. I think that's the main point. I mean, even if you look at these aging quarterbacks, they're not what they once were. And if you look at these aging tennis players, they're, they're also not what they, everybody's aging. Yeah. It's just yeah. that you're so much better than everybody else that even at 38 and 39, and they've slowed down the age curve by the old standards. You must be much steeper. But if you asked me, I still would th- think that 27 is the maximum on an individual basis. Maybe that, you know, Jeez, uh, really? on, if you take the arc of somebody's career, Agreed. I think 27 is, is, the, is the best where any individual's career would probably arc. And I, if you look back at, at, at probably the big four in men's tennis, it's not that far off. Am I, am I wrong? It's just for my sentiment. Um, my intuition says that that's about what Well, I don't understand the trough behind these guys. Why is it that we've played 10, 15 years or 10 years, 12 years beyond these peaks, and there hasn't been another thing that came up behind them? Well, there's, at, I see it as two reasons. One, they've slowed down their descents so much, much, much more, uh, less rapidly than they used to go. I mean, think about McEnroe, think about Borg, these were some personal decisions, but even Connors, I mean, these guys would, back in the 80s, you just, you just collapsed. And I think that was true for a long time. And they've been lengthening that. But why isn't there been entry? Why hasn't there been more entry into the game behind? That's the mystery. also, Kate, there's a five or six years age difference between Federer and Djokovic. Right. So when, when Federer became, went on his downturn, the next six years were covered by Djokovic and his peak. So you have these like two separate six to eight year periods where Federer was the best. And now Djokovic and Nadal are the best. And that's covered 12 to 14 years. Well, that's an entire generation of players. I mean, the most parsimonious explanation is that they are just that much better than the the typical field. And they're just that much better, which is just endorsement after endorsement, year after year of endorsement about these guys. By the way, we we, kind of ran past it, but it seems to me that we have this weird, wonderful era in football where you have – two very entirely generation separated cohorts of quarterbacks. We're going to look back and say, hold on, Brady and Breeze were playing and competing in high levels at the same yeah. time as Mahomes and Jackson and maybe Murray. I mean, these are separate. These no, are like, that's right. It, and then we're already sort of seeing like in Brady, Brady and Breeze are kind of the holdovers from like a generation where, you know, we, Peyton Manning and like, you know, some of these yeah, like amazing right. players. And, 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 you know, it does seem like now it's kind of dominated by these very young quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. So we still have, you know, we have kind of a bridge, you know, Aaron Rodgers, is a little bit of a bridge to Russell Wilson is we do have kind of quarterbacks in that more intermediary age, but it almost does feel like a little bit of a trough here now too. It feels, it feels remarkable on both ends of the spectrum, like, like, like generational players, at least in breeze and Brady, but also generational players at least 
in Mahomes and Jackson. It's just, it's really a neat time. All right, U.S. Open golf. We kick off the third, second major, the second major of the season. We're only going to play three this year, I think. Second major of the season this weekend, winged foot, a storied course, a difficult course. Of course, the U.S. Open always sets up difficult predictions that the winning score are going to be above par, which is unusual. So, um, of course, Dustin Johnson has been playing very well lately. We talk about momentum mattering, or it's, it's not really momentum. It's non-stationary matters in golf. He's played really well in recent weeks. His coming in at plus 800. Adi, real quickly, plus 800. What does that translate into in terms of probability? Uh, one-ninth. That's not a probability. One-ninth? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that's 11%. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wait a minute. Um, oh, you mean you wanted a fraction? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a percentage. I gave a you a fraction. That is a probability. <laughs> it is a probability. Thank you. 11% on Dustin Johnson. Uh, Rom is right behind him. Um, Thomas is third. Murakawa, he got the first major of the year. Rory, Xander, they're all in the top five or six. Tiger Woods coming in at plus 4,000. It's very interesting about that. And I, I actually hadn't seen these odds. I wonder if it's going to help. I think it's going to help him. So do you know who Tiger Woods is playing with? They've announced the tee times. Oh, really? No. He's playing. I think this helps him. He's playing with Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa. Why does that help him? Well, this is a question. I, I frame it as I think it's going to help him. He's playing with two of the top five players. So yeah. in some sense, let's imagine, I'll make it up. Let's imagine, it's a par 70 course, by the way, and it's really long. It's really tough. Let's imagine he shoots 73, and he's like, oh, sh- I did terrible. And Justin Thomas shoots 75, and Morikawa shoots 76. He's like, oh, hmm, I'm doing yeah. pretty well here. <laughs> like, my view is, if he beats Morikawa and Thomas, forget what his score is. My guess is he's probably doing okay. And also, yeah. you know, there is this idea in golf. They say this. I don't know if this would be good to have a golf person on to say this. When your threesome does well, does yeah. it help everybody in the threesome? They yeah. say that on the air yeah. all the time. It but I don't know if it's way. true. When you play, it definitely feels that way. Um, and, but it's a, a simple empirical question. Yeah. And it's not actually simple because there's, there are structural reasons that play would be correlated. But it's an interesting question. But uh, fascinating pairing. I mean, that's a glitzy, high-profile pairing. Eric, you've always got, like, your eyes on Tiger, and he's been disappointing recently. What are you expecting out of him for this tournament? I'm not expecting a lot um, unless – what I have to – I have to study this. I have to look at the holes. If he can play five wood and irons off the tees, he can win the tournament. But if well, he might has, that not be the prudent play anyway? Because the U.S. Open will be so punitive. I mean, no, you're, want, you're putting him in the fairways. 500-yard hole, and you had a 240-yard iron off the tee. Last time I did math, that leaves you 260 yards to the green, which nobody wants because when the green is rock solid and undulates away from you, um, you'll, do you want to get a penalty uh, in the fairway or near the green? So you have to hit the ball 300 to 320 to have a reasonable shot into the green. I think that's what's so hard about wing foot. Forget the heavy rough. It's so long that you can't just hit iron off the tee. All that's right, the problem. All right. All right. And I have kind of a question about wing foot, I guess. Like, so you, you mentioned before that, like, you know, there's this prediction that like this, the winning score might be over par at the U S open. And that is unusual. Is it unusual just because of wing foot? Or is there like extra, like, uh, you know, it, the people maybe, you know, because of this kind of weird season that people aren't going to be as sharp as they otherwise would no, be? No, it's not the latter, well. but it's not just the course, but it's the setup. So it's the course okay. and setup. US Open, they generally want to be more punitive. 
and then you right. give them a course like winged foot and they can they can because wing foot's not exactly an unconventional like they've played at wing foot the u.s open at wing foot before and have yeah. that have those situations been has the winner been over par for yes. those plus five okay. plus five wow. the last All time right. The funniest thing I saw on the golf channel today when I was watching was they showed the guys mowing the, the, the rough and stuff. They had mowed it. I'm like, that's mowed. Like it looked like, you know, that grass was like a foot high. I'm like, Oh, if you go into the rough, you got a problem. Well, one of those British open mowers for it, I guess, or something like that. And I'm so sad. There's no British this year. It's so weird and wrong to not have the British, but you know, sometimes the guys take this, they take the course set up too far. And I mean, golfers are not, beyond complaining about the setup so it'll be really interesting to see if they strike the balance right um and it'll be a lot of fun biggest question is whether dj can get it done um no majors one major no majors one he has one one. major he's been in contention a zillion times people people have said he chokes um he's at the top of his game right now he's at the top of the sport right now is he gonna pull it off 11 percent chance says the market so I'm going to say, I mean, I, I will say no. I mean, I'd rather have 89% than 11%. But I think Adi's question, I think Adi's point from a couple of weeks ago is the more relevant one. If he's in the top five going into the final round, not if he's having a bad week, because he's allowed to have a bad week. But if he's in contention again and he doesn't win, that to me will be more diagnostic than if he just has a bad week. Like if he's in contention, if he's leading coming Sunday – he better win that damn tournament, or I'm going to keep saying every week on Morton Moneyball that we talk about golf, that this guy, the more tournaments he wins, the worse it looks as far as I'm concerned. All right, then I'm pulling for him either to win the damn thing or not be in contention, because I, I hate to see there him we go. continue to deal with this. Fellas, we're down to about one minute, and we haven't talked baseball. I hear the Yankees are back. Is that true? And what were we? Well, we, you know, we, we, had, we had gone into last week with them on a losing streak an absolute horrible one. So they've had, they've turned around with a five game sweep, um, five in a row and looking reasonable. I mean, Cole had a good game, which was good to see. Um, a lot of people come back from injuries this lot, next couple of weeks. Hopefully right? they're coming back. I like to call them the weightlifters on the Yankees. I'm so down on these super mega, mega giant types. So we'll so see what happens. How much time into the playoffs? I saw an advertisement for the baseball playoffs on TV recently. End of September. Like, normal. Yeah, I think it's two weeks. weeks in the season. Two, two weeks. weeks. Oh my God. It's just, isn't so it crazy? And we're going to yeah. have more playoffs this year, right? It's got some extra teams in yes, there. Are, we gonna, are, are they going to have time to kind of catch up, like the Cardinals and all that? Are they going to – No, it's time? my winning percentage, oh. I think. Okay, oh, so wow. the Cardinals – yeah, all right. Okay. Okay, so it's about time for us to start talking baseball playoffs, which will be a lot of fun. Um, we might kick into that next week. We've got a special show next week. We're going to have a live audience, some, some Penn alumni. It'll be fun to do um, next week. And we're going to have um, the, all, the, all the football to talk about and all the playoffs and – so much to do for this is only the end of the third quarter coming up in the fourth quarter. We have a conversation with our friend, Josh Hermsmeyer on more on the NFL and football analytics. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition. We have expanded from our abbreviated one-hour version to uh, two-hour versions. Today's guest, longtime friend of the show, one of our favorites, Josh Hermsmeyer. Good afternoon, Josh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kate. Always good to be on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> well, we're always glad to have you. Most of you guys know who are listening. Josh is a football writer. He's the inventor of Air, y- Air Yards, a, a great little stat for football analytics and, the, and a precursor to some of the stuff that's come since. Josh has been writing for 538. This is 
his second or third season now writing for 538. You can see him up there on 538, probably doing weekly pieces. And um, he's also a terrific follow on Twitter. He goes by the handle at Frisco Josh because he likes to refer to San Francisco as Frisco. At Frisco Josh, fantastic follow on Twitter. That's his mocking. That's his mocking reference to San Francisco. Josh, how are you doing? How was week one for you? I mean, you write about football. You think about football. You interact about football all year long. And then it was finally here. It's a great feeling to actually have football to analyze and data to look at and all that. But uh, I can tell already um, there's been some folks who have been hitting hard the entire offseason, you know, trying to create content, trying to keep football relevant in this pandemic we're living in. And, and I can already tell people are exhausted, especially after this double Monday night game. Um, I mean, this is week one. We, we need the ice no, up. No. It's going to be, it's, this is a long slog, even for us media types. So that, that's right. You got to be sustainable, man. You got to be sustainable. It, it is interesting where you don't really have your chops. My experience with week one, you know, it, it hits me more with college football. Remember a couple of years ago when Houston OU played first weekend and Texas Notre Dame played and they had just started, it was the beginning of when they would start football on like Thursday night and then they would play football all the way through Monday. So it's literally five days and Saturday is just an orgy of college football. I remember being, and, you, and you've got no skills for it. You're not ready. You're soft from the off season. And I was just beaten to a pulp. But as much as I loved it, I was beaten to a pulp by the end of the week. And, and NFL, with their Thursday night game and their doubleheader on Monday, they do a little bit of that to you as well. Yeah, I, I know, especially people on the East Coast, we're, we're hurting at the end of last night. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm on the West Coast, or at least I'm on Pacific time. I'm not quite on the coast anymore. Um, but uh, it, it, is, it, it, it is a lot. And uh, I think, you know, by next week, I think we'll all have – calluses on our ACL. Right, 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 right. We'll be ready to go. But uh, yeah, this is a rude awakening. I'm, but I'm, you know what, this isn't complaining. Um, I am no. so happy to have some football. And, and one of the things I, I was really vocal in my criticism of the NFL and, and the way they, uh, the way we thought they might handle the, the situation, the pandemic, and boy, they've proved uh, all the naysayers wrong, uh, at least so far. And uh, I think they deserve right. a lot of credit for uh, um, yeah, the lack of the lack of spread. It's just been a hundred percent agreed. We, 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 we took probabilities a few months ago on, on sports playing meaningful seasons and we all had football at the lowest on the list and, you know, college isn't out of the woods yet, but in all likelihood pros going to be fine. And frankly, all the sports have done a surprisingly good job on, on this. Uh, and it's, and thankfully so, because there is some normalcy to being able to watch some football and it's, we, you know, we're not yet used to not having fans in the stands, but, there's a real normalcy to seeing a guy, you know, drop back and pass and some tackling happening and a last minute drive and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and it, it's heartening too, because the incentives are aligned for that to happen. I mean, they, they, they right. shouldn't want this to be safe and they made it safe. And that kind of makes you feel better about things in general. Yep. Yep. Well, give us, give us some thoughts off the top of your head. I mean, you're, you're an analyst, but you're also a football fan. And I'm sure some of those thoughts are analytical and some are maybe perhaps less analytical, but coming out of the weekend, um, everyone's got a different way of thinking about it, but just kind of top of your head, what, what jumped out to you? I, I think I wrote about this on 538 yesterday. Uh, the thing that was most surprising to me was the play of Josh Allen. I thought he actually looked decent. Um, you know, he had some of his characteristic insane plays. His, his fumbles were, 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 were slapstick almost. Uh, ball came out of nowhere and flew up in the air. And, uh, <laughs> and then he had some really, you know, really poor throws to no one in general in the end zone. And, 
And, and that's, that's kind of what we've come to expect from Josh Allen. But in between, you know, this insanity, he actually okay. led a bunch of really sustained, uh, nice sustained drives. They missed a couple field goals. And, um, and but in general, the, the Bills look like a, a pretty good team. And, and I think if, if, if Josh Allen can be a game manager who once in a while, you know, provides some wow with that arm of his, um, you know, maybe, maybe they uh, go a little farther this season than the, into the is, playoffs. Is it too glib of me or is it fair to say that if Josh Allen turns out to be a reasonable starting quarterback in the NFL, then it'll be a, a, a miss for the analytics community? Oh, huge miss, huge miss. Um, you know, he was all projection, all physical traits, no real production, nothing really you could hang your hat on in terms of, you know, past his prologue, uh, you know, historical comps, uh, production, anything that we can, at least at this point in time, quantify, didn't really like him very much. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all the things that people liked in him were these kind of ephemeral things or, or trait-based, uh, just in terms of raw talent, arm talent. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the limitations of scouting, but there are certainly huge limitations to, to what we can quantify right now. And, uh, and, and Alan would be, uh, you know, I think exhibit A if he turns out to be good um, right. of, of those limitations. Well, especially in that draft class. I mean, if, things, if, like, if Sam Darnold doesn't turn out, if Josh Rosen doesn't turn out, I mean, these, this is just a fascinating class to follow over the next couple of years. Um, you know, quarterback play, Barnwell wrote his whole first week article about quarterbacks. He just used that as the framework, which was easy to do because it was so many interesting storylines. But I remember at, at about halftime of the early games, all the quarterback stats were ridiculous. They were like 17 of 19, 13 of 14, 15 of 7. Like everybody was just tearing it up. Now, they didn't all finish the game that way. But, you know, like Gardner Minshew had a great week one. And when that's happening, you're like, okay, what's going on with quarterback play in the NFL? I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm supporting him. Though. I'm, I'm pulling for him, by the way, but it's a little surprising. Yeah, Minshew, you know, he came from Pullman, which is just around the corner from me. And yeah. uh, a big, big, big fan of Minshew, just the, the person. But yeah, no, his, his play is surprising. And, and the conduct of, of the team, the Jaguars, leading up to this season, kind of, it, it, it kind of betrays their lack of faith in, in him, right. in my opinion. And so to have him step up and put a performance, right. like, which I mean, has him at the top of almost every metric I respect uh, right now. Um, uh, interesting. We'll see how he can, if he can continue it. I mean, if you, if you have other measures that kind of, you know, weight your prior on him a little more heavily coming into week one, you know, he's still a below average quarterback, even in his division, but, uh, um, but yeah, that was a great week one for him. Well, you just mentioned the, the stats you like to use when you evaluate quarterbacks. So let's talk about those a little bit and um, we can use it as kind of an update on the state of play in the sports analytics world. There's nothing more, you know, interesting and controversial than quarterback stats. I've, I, you have tweeted recently that you like Dakota Ben Baldwin's blend. So tell us a little bit about what that is and why you like it so much. Yeah. So I, there's different ways of kind of showing the relationships between the metrics he puts into Dakota, which is completion percentage over expected and EPA per play. EPA per play is basically what feeds into ESPN's QBR, their, their, their black box metric. Um, but it's, it's in general, it's just EPA per play. It's, you know, an efficiency metric, you divide uh, how many expected points per play added they, they, they contribute to a team's performance. The problem with that metric on its own is it's, there's a lot of other things caught up in it. Uh, there's yak, you know, a short, short screen pass could turn into a 69 yard touchdown, like with Sam Darnold. Um, and uh, uh, who, who's their short, short air wide receiver. Uh, I'm going to blank on him. But anyway, he had a screen pass for 69 yards this past, this past week. And, you know, really that's a zero yards pass for him. It's, it's completed 95% of the time. 
Um, it, you really shouldn't be giving a quarterback too much credit for that. And, and so what completion percentage over expected does is it says, well, on a short pass like that, historically, those are caught very often. We should probably downweight um, the credit we give to a, a quarterback for passes like that. And these are very gross kind of coarse measures of these types of things. Um, you know, we're still, you know, you know, using rocks and sticks with, with football <laughs> analytics. But, but it does, I think, do a good job of getting at and controlling for some of the scheme parts of the quarterback's performance. Uh, that should rather that should be attributed to scheme, mm-hmm. and uh, so you add those two together, and you get Dakota. You weight them correctly, which you use a, a regression for that, and then and then you get this uh, this ranking of quarterbacks. It seems to me to be pretty decent. So uh, before before we look at the rankings themselves, let me ask one more um, um, kind of geeky detailed question. If I'm not mistaken, it's predictive EPA per attempt as opposed to whatever else it would be so i'm assuming that's some kind of out of sample weight but can you tell us what is do you know what's what he means by or what anybody means by predictive epa as opposed to just epa yeah that's a good question uh you know the, the gentleman who's been working on that flavor of epa has been doing it for the past couple of years um and i saw and, and i'm not an expert on this and i can't even recall his name but we interact on twitter quite a bit the general idea is exactly what you say. He's weighting each of these variables based on their out-of-sample predictive power. And so that means you downweight defense. Um, um, So you have a less descriptive metric. It doesn't quite capture what happened in a game, more more attuned to what might happen in the future. Um, uh, I think I'm trying to remember the other big – oh, I think we lost you. You still got – you guys still have me? Yes, we have you. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I, I can't quite remember the other the other uh, big factors in there, but I remember defense was a big one. In any event, yeah, it's exactly what you suggest. It's it's just EPA um, weighted uh, to try and be a better predictor of future performance. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's certainly a nice way to go. We 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 like out of sample weights for dang sure. So when you look at the numbers for this past week, you, you said it kind of. I think what you're saying is it. it it matches the eye test in some way. And so you, you like it from a theoretical perspective, but you also like the way it resonates with what you think you see on the field. So what does it tell us about week one performances? Yeah, it really liked um, uh, Russell Wilson's performance. I think he's number one on the list. And, and, and then you look just a little bit further down and you see Patrick Mahomes is, is, is on a tier slightly lower. And I think that kind of fits with what we saw. I mean, Mahomes was great and the Chiefs looked outstanding. But again, a lot of those passing plays and a lot of the credit he gets for his, his, you know, his play, which is tremendous. And I'm not taking anything away from him, but there is an Andy Reid component to his game. Yeah, Uh, It's there. It's the matching of those two that makes them so unbeatable. And, and I think that that kind of captures his performance, at least for week one. Um, I think uh, Minshew is getting the credit he deserves for a performance where he was almost flawless um, in his decision-making and then the execution on those decisions. So I think um, I think yeah I think it's a pretty good metric. I mean, people could argue whether or not you know Lamar uh, Lamar Jackson had a, had a fantastic week by any stretch. Um, perhaps he should be at the top. So I mean, but you're you're nitpicking at this point. And like I said, we're we're, we're using rocks and sticks right now. So <laughs> I think uh, I think it's a, a really good metric. Well, that's I, I want to in a second get to some um, some tools beyond rocks and sticks. But for the minute, let's just use this to unpack the week one a little bit more. Um, the two ends of the spectrum, Russ Wilson, number one, Carson Wentz, number 32, or maybe 26 it is. Maybe the others didn't have enough attempts. But anyway, top and bottom. Wentz, I mean, that's the local guy. Well, you mentioned Russ. Let's stay with him for a second. Is this the year that Seattle finally takes the tethers off of Russ Wilson's arm? 
it sure looked like it, didn't it? And then you see this quote from from Pete Carroll saying, you know, no, we're really gonna we're gonna get more touches for these running backs. This isn't this oh isn't God. how we're going to be moving forward. Oh my God! I, and so it almost makes you feel like they were kind of uh, daring Russ, right, to to make it happen this game. Like they just they they did every here. We'll give you everything you ask for, Russ. Let's see what happens. <laughs> almost you know almost incredulously, and uh, and, right. and they, they, like they they ran for it on third and four and they lost a yard and it was fourth and five and, and it was and it was like I think they were on their 38 this is just not a Seahawks move they go for it on fourth down right. and Russ just chucks it up to DK Metcalf for a touchdown wild <laughs> just a wild Seahawks play but I, I kind of feel like now after listening to Carol maybe they were just kind of saying yeah let's see what he does you know go ahead yeah right. dare you Russ right that that fits better with my understanding of some of those folks than than the alternative, which is they've actually come around, they've changed their mind, they're going to move into the 2000s. Um, but I hope not, because it's such a shame to have that guy shackled the way he is. Okay, Carson Wentz, the savior of Philadelphia, not supposed to be ranked at the bottom of these kinds of numbers. What, what's your, what do you think is going on with Carson Wentz? Well, I think, you know, being a Philly guy, I'm sure you've read, uh, you know, ahead of the game, we knew they didn't have their offensive line. I think they three projected starters were out. Um, they were going against a defense with a bunch of like high round picks on the D line. So that was a pretty terrible matchup for them. And it kind of came to fruition in the game. Like uh, there was nine sacks, I believe. So, I mean, look, Wentz was under duress. There's, there's stuff here uh, clouding this evaluation of his performance that aren't, aren't, aren't exactly Wentz based, but okay. he also wasn't great. I mean, and, and when you come out to a lead, whether with a 17, nothing lead at one point uh, yeah. to give that all away. Um, yeah. Uh, pretty poor, pretty poor performance in the second half all around. And I think you, you can put that part on Wentz. Well, you know, it's hard to partition those things. And as you said, rocks and sticks. And so, you know, we don't do a great job yet of capturing the impact of that kind of disruption. And it's not just on the place where disruption actually occurs because a, a, a quarterback who is harassed that badly is going to be thinking about that harassment, even on plays when he's not harassed that badly. Mm-hmm. And so there's this knock on effect that's hard to be to, hard to capture in these numbers. Um, Josh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about a, a more advanced set of stats as well. And I know you're a, you're a deep aficionado of the running game and a big fan of the running game. And so I thought you'd, you'd want, to some time, want to spend some time on the running game. Um, Michael Lopez, I mean, we could, have, we could just grab his thread and just comment and, and ooh and ah over the stuff that he's been putting out there. But I absolutely love the stuff they're doing on expected yards um, out of the running game. Um, what, what is your reaction to that stuff? And, and can, let's, let's just kind of talk through it a little bit, but I want to get your high level reaction first. High level. Um, I think it's interesting. And I think I understand the motivation behind what Mike was doing, which was let's put some of our brain power and resources into really trying to nail down the run and, and understand the run because so often analytics folks like me, um, will vocally disparage running in all its forms. And, 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 I, and that's not, accurate either but it is you know kind of a generalization uh, of the analytics community so I think his his push to try and kind of quantify this and and, and go beyond maybe um, the analysis um, that people like me do which is if you have a low box count you should run high box count never run um, broken tackles are good and that's about the extent of what we can say and and so you know Lopez did this big data bowl project had some really bright people super smart folks go in and, and build some really cool predictive models and now he has um, the one they're using, the winner of the contest. Uh, he has this ability to say on a particular play, given um, the state of the defense and offense, all the players on the field, all 22 people, 
uh, the state of the state of play is the game state at, at the moment of handoff. We can predict uh, how many expected yards um, uh, that play should have, you know, on average get gotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's I think that's really I think that's a really interesting thing to look at it. And, and it kind of gives you an idea of um, the performance, perhaps, of, 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 of the teams, um, you know, both offense and defense and the structure of the game on those runs in a window into that that we didn't have before. Like we can see, well, look, there was a lot of really, you know, um, uh, there were a lot of runs in a particular game that had a high expected value. That seems interesting, you know, uh, um, right. whether or not, you know, the, the randomness, you know, I take away the randomness, which is the actual result of the play. Do you say, well, look, look at this, these, the, the structure of these teams when they run seems to be that they run in good situations. I think that is probably the most interesting thing that might come away from uh, from using these metrics is to understand the intent of the run because we know just the inherent variability of what what occurs after all these players start uh, you know interacting and and, and blocking and and uh, missing tackles or not missing tackles you know the, the actual outcomes are just really noisy. Well, so I, I, you went somewhere there at the end that I didn't expect you to go. And I want to hear, under, make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying you think it's interesting because we can discern intent and intent is interesting. So I don't, I don't, I'm not quite following you there. So I, I think what I want to get at is our people, our teams running in situations where um, they have an advantage, right? Um, or, or are they just running to run? And so often okay. the complaint from analytics folks are, are, is that, you know, you're not taking advantage of light box counts or, you're not taking advantage of the, the way the defensive structure is presenting itself. Like if you have a numbers advantage, okay. plus side, that kind of thing. And I think this metric can help us get closer to which are the smart coaches with running and which are the ones that seem to just say, let's run it up the middle. Let's just jam. Well, it so you're it. seeing, you're seeing layers in this that aren't apparent to most people. And, and so I, let's hold off on that for one second. Cause I think it's really interesting, but for the moment, let's just look at, so they, 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 I like it because they've taken this new tool, this, this, this motion tracking data and done something useful with it because, you know, that's a shiny object. That's a lot of fun to play with, but can we, can we aggregate it up to something that's useful? And what this tells us is it kind of partitions runs in, in at least my first cut, it partitions one run performance between team and running back essentially. And you and others in the analytics community have, pushed for a long time on the running back not being an important part of the equation, not, not an especially persistent important part of the equation. And these data help us understand that um, more finely. It also says, well, there are some team differences. And you can see that in, they're saying every time they hand the ball off, they can tell you expected yards. And some teams have better expected yards than others. So for example, in week one, the Bears average was 4.83 across all their attempts. And that drifts all the way down. I'm going to set aside the Giants. My God, the Giants were 1.12. Mm-hmm. which is off the chart down low, but that, you know, the, the, the Washington football team was 2.65. These are big differences every time they run the ball and they're not attributed to the back. It's just attributed to the offense. Now what you're adding to it that I wasn't seeing, which I think is fantastic is that these situations aren't exogenously given. You don't flip a coin and decide to, and you, the coin doesn't tell you whether to run or not. You choose when you run. And you've been a big advocate for a long time of running in favorable situations, which is primarily determined by how many guys are in the box. And so it's not just scheme or effectiveness of the block, but also the situation in which they decided to run the ball that determines these differences in expected yards before the guys even touched it. I think that's that's true because there's also uh, canned plays, right? They'll go to the line with a couple plays called and, you know, at the line, they'll take a look at the defense and then make the quarterback will make a switch. 
and 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 a lot of times it'll be a run pass and and so if you do have a good smart quarterback and you do have uh, coaches who are able to package plays well and give them the best chance to succeed at the line there, I think that, you know, maybe it'll capture some of that too. And all that is invisible to us, right. As fans and as observers of the game and analysts of the game. Uh, and so, you know, kind of getting a peek into perhaps that is also pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, you're, I think your, your, your relative moderate enthusiasm here, despite being pretty fancy stats, because this is beyond sticks and rocks, right. One, I think you'd say, look, this isn't the most important part of the game. I don't know why Lopez is doing this. He's putting all these resources into the least important part of the game. And so I get that. Another thing, and this is related to that, is that, look, there are team differences, but they're kind of swamped by the randomness. So if you look at, so Michael has put some charts up, and you can look at a chart that says expected yards for each carry in week one. And we just ran down the mean differences between the Bears and the Giants. But within each team, there's huge variation. The Bears run the ball, whatever they ran, 20 times, and it, and, it's, and it goes from like 15 to zero. And then most teams have similar-looking variation. There's a little bit of mean difference swamped by the variation. So this is a situation where the, the, the statistical thing is that the interclass correlation coefficient here would be small. Mm. The amount of variation that's explained by, by differences across teams is small relative to all the variation observed. And mm. Um, that doesn't mean it's meaningless because these are meaningful differences, but it's, it's, it's swamped by the randomness. And I think that's, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering that's one of the things that kind of leaves you less interested in this whole, this whole enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, you said it eloquently and, and as you should uh, being a, a PhD and professor, but I, I think that uh, it's kind of what I'm looking at right now. I'm, I'm building a model for field goals and, and, and trying to predict because this past week we had the lowest field goal percentage in the past 20 years in the NFL. Um, and it wasn't just Goskowski last night with his three misses. Before that, it was still the lowest field goal percentage of week one in the last 20 years. And I, uh, so I've been trying to look at this. I, you know, you, obviously, you can't just stop there. There's lots of other things to adjust for. But it is a pretty uninteresting aspect of football. It's, it's, just, it's not impactful to the game. I mean, it is in a negative sense, but it isn't uh, a driver winning um, and, and, and I kind of feel the, that way in a large, de- to a large degree about, about, uh, the running game, save yeah. for that part where we're talking about if we could get teams to make better decisions about when they run, um, there's nothing to say that running can't be an efficient way to move the football, matriculate the ball down the field and be a, an, an important part of football again. Um, I, I, and I would like to see that happen. Um, uh, but, uh, so often you see what happened with the giants last night and, uh, you know, just pounding the rock and into the team, the defense is absolutely expecting it um, right. and uh, not having very good success, even with one of the, uh, you know, greatest talents at running back perhaps we've seen in, in the past uh, 15, 20 years. Well, I, I think it's a really interesting direction to point. I, they're going to keep doing this work. Somebody's going to keep doing this work. And one of the things you're pushing for is, okay, let's partition this expected yards for each carry, this team, this kind of team stat, let's partition it between, you know, the play chosen and the execution from the situation that it was deployed in. And there's this situation, there's this decision made by the coach or the QB at the line that's explaining a, probably a big chunk of this variance. And let, we don't have that here, but it's in here. We don't have it parse out. And let's, let's get to that because that's, that's decision-making. That's team-level coach and, and QB decision-making. It's really interesting. I, 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 the thing I like about this, besides being kind of, I think, intellectually interesting, there this is like, you know, they're, they're building credibility for NGS, for the next generation stats. They're building credibility 
with coaches and teams, you know, they're like making the case. And if you're going to make the case with the traditional audience, you're probably ought to start with traditional stats. And so let's better understand the running game. That's maybe one argument, but hmm. the fascinating thing about NGS is we just know five years from now, it's going to look so different from what it does now. You know, it's just like, these are baby steps towards some frontier that we don't even know, but these are, you know, I'm kind of enjoying the process as part of it. But, but let's come back to the kicking thing. I think that's interesting. One of the things we observed in college football this opening weekend was all the special team stuff happened, seemingly at a higher rate than it normally happens. You know, blocked kicks, punt returns for touchdown, kickoff returns for touchdown. And the very easy explanation seems to be that, you know, teams didn't have that much prep. They, didn't, they weren't able to spend the special teams time. And so you get all this variance out there. It's kind of fun. It's kind of exciting. Is there anything like that that might be going on on the, on the field goal kicking side for the NFL? You said it was low, low performance this first weekend. Yeah, yeah, it was historically low for, for a week one. Not, not particularly historically low if you look at all weeks across, you know, every season since 2000. Um, I think it's 19th or something like that. And in fact, in 2001, 2002, we, we, we had a lot of these weeks when there was just, um, and, and I, 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 this is, again, more work needed, but I think they were kicking a lot of longer field goals. And so when you adjust for that, I think what we're going to find that this is still going to be historically low performance by the NFL because they just they are going for fourth more and, and all the rest making better decisions in general due to people like you and I think that I think that you know uh, field goal kicking is interesting but I think at the end my my takeaway is just going to be it's probably just one of those random weeks um yeah I right. think we're going to be able to point to anything you know causally and say oh well this this is probably what's driving it but it, it's interesting to look at and interesting to talk about and uh you are squarely, squarely a member of the analytics community. You're robbing the, the, the crowd of their narrative. You're robbing them of the fun, saying, this, no, it's just noise, nothing to see here. Move along, move along. Listen, man, we've drug you into some things that you find boring, running game and field goals. What are you excited about right now? So tell us something. I know you don't usually want to give away you know, stories before they happen, but what are, what's something you're excited about working on over the next few weeks or this season? Well, I mean, the most exciting thing I did was about a month ago, and uh, I got my hands on play-by-play uh, -play tracking data that I could use, like at least I thought I could use. And I, I created a separation over expected metric and uh, using, you know, all, all, the, all the, uh, the bounty of data that is available with tracking data, like how close the receiver was to the sideline, the amount of time the ball was in the air on the way to him his separation at the point of release of the ball, uh, um, how close the nearest defender was to him, you know, the exact coordinates on the field that he was at, um, all that just really rich data. I was able to use it and, and, and make a reasonable model of a pretty good model. I think the, the MAE, the mean absolute error was one yard. So it was pretty good. Um, and and it, Sounds really good. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, and, and so I was able to say that, you know, guys like Devontae Adams are just incredibly good at creating separation more than what you would expect given all of the variables I described. Okay. Um, and, 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 and that, and that people like, uh, uh, boy, who, who was really bad at the bottom, like guys like Kelvin Benjamin, you know, you know, so the, the face validity, the thing you, that you mentioned earlier about being able to pass the eye test, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it seemed to work there. Um, but one of the really interesting things, because what gets me going is, is, is passing, right. And, and more importantly, the quarterback is, you want to talk about, you know, the most important thing to get right. Um, it's probably, you know, that position. And, and, and one of the coolest things that came out of it was that on intermediate passes, quarterbacks, um, 
even with you take two quarterbacks with amazing arms, you could say uh, Patrick Mahomes, he could throw football out of Arrowhead Stadium. We've seen it. And uh, Josh Allen, a guy who can throw the ball through uh, a field goal uh, uprights from his knees from the 50 yard line. We've seen that happen. So they both have amazing arms. Um, but when you look at intermediate passes, Patrick Mahomes throws the ball many times, many times he will throw the ball and a mile per hour, or excuse me, it'll, the, I want to say this correctly because uh, otherwise the NFL gets mad. This is not a measure of speed. This is a measure, the t- measure of time that the ball is in the air. So for a full second longer on intermediate throws than Josh Allen. And, it, and I was looking at this data and I was like, why is this happening? Why, why would a guy with, you know, they have, maybe Allen has a slightly stronger arm, but this is, this is a strange result. Like uh, Patrick Mahomes was one of the outliers. And, and what I finally came up with, and after looking at a lot of other players, was that these guys are just throwing with anticipation. Aaron Rodgers yeah. is the same way. So on these intermediate throws, they're throwing before the guy's open. Um, yeah. And the ball is hanging in the air longer. And it's not see the guy open, throw the ball as hard as you can at him. Um, and I think this is you – know, and whenever I talk to film guys and I, about this, they get super excited, right? Because you're quantifying yeah. a trait that they watch. And, and, uh, and, and I was, you know, all set to – I'll set to publish uh, what I think is some pretty cool research. And uh, man, I can't tell you the NFL, they got really upset. Got really upset. Uh, really? Called ESPN. They turned off my data. What? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, really, Why? really, really bad. Why? Uh, uh, well, okay. So there's business decision. I can tell you the business reasoning and then there's some other murkier, you know, you know, core, core answers that I don't have. The business reasoning is that ESPN signed a, a contract that gave the gives continues to give the NFL say so over what we publish. Okay. That's one way to get data. That's one way to do it. That's right. That's right. So that's the, that, that's the, you know, I mean, that, that pretty much answers the question. Um, the question of course, why I think is something right, but yeah, but why that one exactly? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there's some sensitivity um, in the league when you analyze quarterback ball velocity, I think that, I think it's multifaceted. They've had some trouble with the chip in the ball and the readings. Uh, it's unreliable, or at least it was in previous seasons. Um, and, and I think uh, we've kind of validated that it's not, it hasn't been amazing in past years. Okay. But, but, the, but the, the, the data I was getting looked pretty good. So I, I still think there's something to, something to be said. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's other things. Like some people were talking, there's a CBA I, but I have read this. I've looked, at least I looked through the CV. I didn't see anything about can't, can't uh, publish quarterback arm velocity stuff, but. Uh, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. It's just a matter of time, but that is, it's fascinating observation. So we, I mean, we ran past the separation stuff, which we could, I, I would talk about more, but even just this velocity thing is really interesting. I mean, what another consequence of, of throwing a little bit easier ball, especially when you're, doing so with such anticipation is that you're giving the receiver a greater chance to turn around and find the ball, right? The, the earlier you throw it, the more you need to allow them to find it and get to it. And he's, he's leading them enough that he can kind of put it out there gently. He's putting, going to put it in the right spot. They can put it out there gently. Therefore they have more time to spot it and get there to it. It's a more catchable ball really. Yeah. We we saw it with Mahomes to Kelsey uh, on uh, Thursday night when he threw that touchdown, he released the ball. It, It looked, for all the world, like he was covered. But right. at the last second, he cleared the linebacker, turned around, and there was the ball. Russ did it on Sunday to his tight end, uh, Olsen, yeah. a similar kind of play where he released the ball before he had turned. And And yeah. I think it's a part of quarterback play that is super exciting to quantify, um, something we haven't been able to do before, that aligns with scouting priors, that 
it, it's just one of those bridges um, between the two groups. Um, super exciting, but uh, we'll apparently have to wait. <laughs> okay. Well, tell people where they can find the work on separation. I think you've put some of that up by now. So if sure, you want to dig more into that. It's at 538. It's, I think it's uh, not my latest article, but uh, the, the second, uh, the second uh, newest article. So you click on my name on 538 and you should be able to find it pretty easy. That seemed like pretty rich data. Like one paper is probably not going to be, one article is not going to be enough to, to do it justice. There's more wrinkles to get into with that, I would think. Yeah. And I, I, hopefully I was, uh, the humility spilled forth in, in the way I presented it. That I made decisions that perhaps are not the best. I, I believe in them. I mean, they made them, but you know, that could, could be argued uh, the other way. Like when you choose to, you know, measure separation is probably a, a right. really crucial thing. Um, and, and I tried to, I tried to spell that out as much as I can in a, in a form that's really journalism, not academia. But uh, I, I think it, I think, yeah, there's lots, lots more to be done. No, you guys, I mean, come on. You, the best work in sports analytics is done in media right now. I mean, period. They're advancing the conversation so much. The community, I mean, just take football analytics, for example. You, Lopez, Baldwin, I mean, even Barnwell. I mean, the community and the dialogue, that is academic level stuff. And it happens so much faster than academia that it, whatever it misses in the nuance, it makes up for and how quickly it learns. I'm 100% serious. You, that, I, I reject the caveat that you put <laughs> on that on that piece all right we got to go we got to let you go josh it's always a pleasure we're talking to josh hermsmeyer he is football analyst you can find his work at 538 you can also follow him on twitter at frisco josh at frisco josh is his handle always a pleasure josh thanks cave love it always thanks man take care see ya all right all right that has been four quarters of wharton moneyball we will do this again next week from the whole crew Adi weiner eric bradlow shane jensen maddie datz Dion Simpkins, we don't give Dion enough love now that we're out of the studio. Dion's still doing the work. He's putting this thing together for us back there. Assistant, I mean, sorry, associate producer, Dion Simpkins, and, help, and co-creator of the show, man. Dion, really appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll do it again next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.